Hello everyone, and welcome back to The Blacklist, where I discuss the lives and legacies of Black Hollywood. I know it hasn't been too long since the last episode of our first season, which is available in its entirety on SoundCloud and iTunes, but I felt compelled and inspired to come back for a new season while I'm in the middle of preparing for the next full season, which will be back later this year. But while I was preparing for that season and while I was writing the last, I realized that one of the things I always enjoyed the most, aside from discovering more about the lives of the black artists that I admire, is the films. I love talking about films. And more than that, I love talking about black films. I love talking about black films that many people probably haven't, but definitely should see. So this season, that's exactly what I'm going to do. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about six black films that I've selected at complete random that I enjoy, hate, secretly enjoy, and love. And the first film up is Miracle in Harlem. So here we go. I want to preface this episode by saying I respect artists and especially black artists and everything that they did to break into a business in which they are still widely shunned. And I respect everything that goes into making a film. Full stop. 1948's all-African-American Miracle in Harlem is billed as a crime drama following a young woman in charge of her family's candy business who is accused of murdering a black candy magnate. And I have not laughed so hard in weeks as I did when I watched this film, full of turns and twists that I was not even expecting. The film was distributed by Screen Guild Productions, which would later be renamed Lippert Pictures Incorporated. Robert Lippert, the founder and owner, was a film producer and cinema owner who once said of his company, the word around Hollywood is, Lippert makes a ton of cheap pictures, but he's never made a stinker. I only bring this up to say I disagree. Miracle in Harlem stars Sheila Guys, William Graves, Jack Carter of Porgy and Best fame, fun fact, and features Steppin' Fetched. Feel however you will about that. The Juanita Hill Choir and, pleasant surprise, Savannah Churchill sings a number. And we'll get there, but let's start at the beginning. So the film opens on a room of black people, all wearing their Sunday best, minus hats for the most part, harmonizing and singing Swing Low Sweet Chariot in a small living room belonging to one of the churchgoers, Aunt Hattie. Because Aunt Hattie isn't well enough to make it to church, so in true black people fashion, they brought the church to her home. Then a pastor, Reverend Jackson, preaches or rather sings about being careful and cautious and living a righteous life until the end. A bit of foreshadowing that will come up later. Once the congregation says goodbye to Aunt Hattie and leaves, we walk through her house and burst in on Step and Fetch It, who plays Swifty, the handyman, not cleaning, even though he told poor old sick Aunt Hattie he would clean. In this scene, you'll notice that Stepan is sweating despite having done no work, none at all. You'll notice in all of his subsequent appearances in this film, he will still be sweating despite still doing no work. I have my own personal feelings about Stepan and Fetch It that aren't very important now, but I just have to note that very important to me detail. Then we enter the kitchen and meet the family. We learn that their family has a candy making business, which is now run by Julie due to Aunt Hattie's sickness. 
and her beau, Bert, who has just returned home from the war. Then we move to meet the rest of the main characters. There's Albert Marshall, a successful candy business magnet, and a single father, who is fed up with his son's nonsense and wants to stop supporting him after his son, Jim Marshall's chemistry studies in Chicago, took a sour turn when he got involved with a criminal. Philip Manley, who is now wanted for murder by the Harlem Police Department. So yeah, there's that. The funny thing is, Jim, Albert's son, doesn't seem the least bit worried by his actions or his affiliations with criminals, but he has some other shit going on that'll come up soon. And then we meet Alice, who is Albert's lover and secretary that has kept him company since his wife passed. They are so close that Alice is in his will, which I respect. <laughs> and then we go back to Aunt Hattie's apartment and she looks sicker than before. And she tells Bert and Julie that she had a premonition and that she's going to die soon. And she wants her coffin brought to her Harlem apartment and to be surrounded by her friends when she dies as they lay her to bed. She asked Julie to sing her favorite spiritual, which is look down that lonesome road as she strokes Aunt Hattie's hair and she falls asleep. Yes, you heard correctly. She wants her coffin brought to her tiny Harlem apartment to have a faux funeral. Now let's go back to the Marshalls. Now we meet the prodigal son, Jim, a suave, young, untamable, spoiled playboy who learns that if he doesn't get his act together, he will be cut off. So to spite his father, he has an idea to grow slash steal young Julie's candy business by giving them a better facility and better equipment. But then he tells his father all of this information and so his father does it first. And young Jim has no choice but to work for this business as he has no other source of income to support his lavish lifestyle. So concurrently, the Westons, Julie's family, are looking over this contract for their candy business and Stefan Fetchett chimes in with incorrect math about the split, saying that 60 and 40 equals 95 cents and with small quips unintelligibly as he does. And then they sign a business deal to sell the candy kitchen over to the Marshall Candy Company, thinking it would be good for business. But Marshall is obviously looking to screw them over. Then comes my favorite scene and song number in which the family makes packages of candy while Juanita Hill sings chocolate candy blues. Jim is bothering the beautiful young Julie, saying she's too beautiful to be working hard and begging her for a date. But Julie asserts her independence, saying that she enjoys hard work because the candy business is important. But this little shithead won't stop coming on to her. And of course, Bert walks in on this and misinterprets because men are stupid. Later, Alice visits Jim at his home and it is revealed that Jim and Alice are having an affair and were having an affair before he was sent away to school in Chicago. She says she loves him and has done everything to protect him from his father and keep him in his father's will. And Jim says that she's too old and the relationship was never as serious as she thought. So she says, bet, and leaves scorned, obviously with a mission to get back at him. Then we go back to the candy factory and Jim then tries to sexually assault Julie and Bert punches him out. When Mr. Wilkinson, a close and high-ranking employee of Albert Marshall, 
comes in to say that he has to take the candy store and the family recipes and must close this joint venture, leaving Julie and her family with nothing after they work their entire lives for this business. Julie then swears revenge on Albert. When Wilkinson, who was just following orders, asked for the bonus that was promised to him to handle this disgusting matter for Mr. Marshall, he is almost fired and not given the bonus. So now he swears revenge on Albert. So to recap, Jim, Wilkinson and Julie have all sworn revenge on Albert Marshall and Alice is still thirsty slash angry at Jim. Aunt Hattie is still planning her pre-death funeral. Philip Manley is still extorting Jim. The Harlem Police Department is still chasing Philip Manley as he is wanted for murder. And Stephen Fetchett is still sweating for no reason at all. Because again, he's done no actual fucking work. Did I mention that this film is only 69 minutes long? Moving on. So now we're back at Aunt Hattie's apartment in Harlem and her coffin is being delivered. I'll say this plainly. Stephen Fetchett is not funny, but he has one moment in which they bring in the coffin at Aunt Hattie's request and he's confused as to why they're there saying, we ain't got enough candies to fit in that box. And then they explain that it's a coffin and he says, ain't nobody dead up in here. And I'll admit, I laughed. I feel bad, but I cackled just a little bit. And then we go back to Albert Marshall's office and he has revised his will and left everything to Alice, his secretary. And when she, in the moment of faux concern, asked what he left his only son and presumed heir to the Marshall candy fortune, he replies, one dollar, one Singular American dollar is all his spoiled ass son gets. Then they go into his office and Alice gives him some candy. And of course, he dies when he eats the candy. Then we return to Aunt Hattie's home where they're having a mock funeral for Hattie, which she attends. Everyone agrees, this is ridiculous but wouldn't you want to see your own funeral? Because I personally admit that I'm self-centered and plan on copying this whenever the mood suits me. But anyway, the funeral is interrupted by the police coming in and arresting Julie for the murder of Albert Marshall. And what a fucking plot twist, because as it turns out, the bad candy that he ate was made in Julie's house. Woo, this movie just got interesting. <laughs> so... Aunt Hattie, refusing to be upstaged at her own funeral, and rightfully so, screams and faints. And people run to her side to comfort her, even as Julie is literally being arrested. At the police station, the police sergeant or chief or whatever literally says to them, I must warn you, anything you say will be used against you. He literally didn't even read her the rest of her Miranda rights, which is not very important to the plot, but how dare he? Wilkinson and Jim, who are also present and among the accused, immediately turn on Julie and use the words that she said in anger against her. She is released to the custody of Reverend Jackson, a family friend. Then Jim, after the death of his father, throws an extravagant ass party thinking he's just hit the mother load. And the people begin whispering about how can he afford this extravagance? 
and Swifty stumbles in, somehow still sweating from the first scene of the film, with candies. New Orleans chocolate drops for all of the party guests. And the Savannah Churchill, who looks gorgeous, wears this beautiful gown, delivers the most emotional and believable performance of this entire film, singing, I want to be loved. And my only grievance with her performance is that they kept cutting away from her to advance the plot of the film. But back to the actual film. So the detectives have found a poison in the kitchen and are sure that Julie did it. And the chief says to pick up Julie and Jim as they could both be responsible. Jim goes to Julie's candy shop looking for what the police already found and again tries to sexually assault Julie when she confronts him about why he is in her home in the middle of the night. And then spoiler alert, Manly, who followed Jim to blackmail him, intervenes and stabs Jim, saves Julie, then like a dumbass, Julie picks up the knife and screams just as the police come in. Honey, this film is full of twists. So now Julie is in jail and Reverend Jackson tries to get a confession out of Julie who did not see the man who entered and stabbed Jim and all the detectives do is accuse her of lying and try to coerce her into a confession. But her story never changes. The Harlem Police Department hardly gives a fuck about that though. So she's put in a lineup and Julie fucking faints. She literally faints. And who is it that actually sort of saves the day? Swifty, it's step and fetch it. He goes to the police station and does and says stupid shit that's hard to watch, but they deduce that the murderer, Manly, is still at large and plot to set him up and capture him. And do you know what these motherfuckers did? They laid Hattie in that fucking coffin, and when the killer comes, as they knew he would... She rises up and curses him, scaring the shit out of him and making me laugh harder than I have in weeks. So Manly confesses and tries to kill Hattie. And then the police jump out, book him. Problem solved, right? Wrong. There is more movie left. And then we get to the epic conclusion. Wilkinson walks into what used to be Albert Marshall's office, but is now Alice's office, and demands the money that he is owed. And she accuses him of murder. And then the police come in and reveal that she fucking conspired with Manly because she knew that the poison came in a capsule and only the police and the murderer would have known that. So then she revealed that she did it because she loved Jim and that she wanted to be with him. She did it for love, and then she tries to poison herself, which she fails at, and it is said that she will be sent to the electric chair. Then the Westons get their candy store back, and Hattie says she feels like she's had another premonition, and spoiler alert, she wants to live and serve the Lord for as long as she can. Then the credits roll. But what the fuck did they do with her coffin? This movie is full of twists and turns, but even given this crazy plot in the world that is hundreds of miles wide, it's only two inches deep. Everything moves too fast and is too expositional. They don't give moments chances to sit with the audience or with the characters. We don't get any close-ups during moments when I know we are supposed to be empathizing, 
The story jumps back and forth and back and forth and some storylines get hung out to dry until they're convenient again, like on Hattie. They rely too heavily on tropes instead of developing characters, but they do manage to have the similar freedoms of white films, what with the black characters playing a wide range of characters instead of different variations of one character. And there isn't one goddamn maid in this entire movie. Yes, the whole film is poorly shot and sloppily edited and the musical numbers are mostly out of place, though they be beautiful. I don't hold it against them because I know that they are far behind white films in terms of advancements and allowances. And I think to have this kind of freedom, this kind of wild goose chase in a cast of all African-Americans is a win enough for 1948. The character development and such comes later. I give this film six out of 10 Hattie McDaniel Oscars because she was the first and this is the first in this series. And honestly, it made me laugh from deep within my belly. This film is easily accessible on YouTube and probably other streaming platforms. And it's worth a watch because you should take my completely subjective opinion with a grain of salt. Next week, we move from Harlem to Manhattan. This was unintentional, but whatever. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Blacklist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and like this podcast on iTunes and leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined. I know it seems like such a small thing, but it does go a long way. And if you want to learn more about us, please like us on Facebook at The Black-List and follow us on Twitter at The Blacklist Pod. And also feel free to follow my personal Twitter at Mariah in Woods. All episodes of The Blacklist are written, narrated, edited, and produced by Mariah. Mariah Woods, me. Until next time.